wanted to do for the uh, for the sake of you who had uh, come here just for the first time in this our third uh, faith and reason lecture in this series that Father has so graciously come here to provide for us. Uh, submit, Father, to the rigors of me uh, introducing him a third time. So uh, I, I did want to thank him also for all the other ways in which he's made contacts with our students and, and just dove in to being here at Christendom for these past few days, and that will, of course, be uh, culminated tomorrow with the uh, celebration of the Divine Liturgy. Uh, but as you probably know already, if you've heard the previous two talks, uh, Father brings with him great erudition, uh, Byzantine Catholic priest, uh, scholar of patristic literature, liturgy, and especially um, you know, ancient patristic texts in support of that, and a translator, as we learned last night, of, of several texts, and uh, was educated at Wadhams Hall uh, Seminary College in New York. Uh, we also learned, I guess, that uh, Joe Morinelli's uncle went there <laughs> for his seminary training. And, uh, after that was undergraduate. That's, that's, right, yeah. yeah, seminary college. Right. Um, they don't make too many of those anymore. It's closed. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a pity. Uh, and then went on to uh, study at the renowned uh, St. Vladimir Orthodox Seminary. Uh, and studied under the uh, also renowned theologian Alexander Schmemann. And we heard a little bit of Schmemann last night, but I greatly benefited from exposure to his work. Uh, Father has been a priest for 32 years and is presently at Phil Gilbert's uh, parish in Ukiah, California, and has come here to introduce us to uh, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, which is a very common form of the liturgy to see if you participate in Eastern rites, and to introduce us to the practice and some of the spirituality of that in anticipation of our celebration of it tomorrow morning. So thank you once again, Father. Thank you once again, Eric. You're very kind, and it's gratifying to see so many come again on a Friday afternoon when classes are done for the week, and if I were you... I'd probably be flat on my back or, or else doing something entertaining. So I will try to provide. Let's stand and pray. Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O heavenly King, O comforter, the spirit of truth, who are everywhere present and filling all things, the treasury of all blessings and giver of life, Come, dwell within us, and cleanse us from every stain, and save our souls, O gracious Lord. We adore you, O Christ, and we bless you. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today's presentation, as it has been uh, described, is going to be a walkthrough of the Byzantine Divine Liturgy in the most common form in which it is celebrated. That is, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. There are other forms of the Byzantine Divine Liturgy, uh, three others to be specific. There is the Divine Liturgy of St. Basil the Great, which is celebrated anywhere between 10 and 15 times a year in Byzantine Rite churches. It's an older liturgy than that of St. John Chrysostom. Then there's also the divine liturgy named in honor of the first bishop of Jerusalem, James, 
of whom the scripture describes as brother of the Lord, divine liturgy of St. James. And then there is the divine liturgy of the Byzantine-Alexandrian tradition, the Greek tradition of Alexandria as contrasted to the Coptic tradition of Alexandria called the divine liturgy of St. Mark. However, it's the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom that we will look at today. And I would... uh, encourage you, I, I think it's perhaps a, a bit uh, un- understandable that particularly for those who have had uh, very little or perhaps no uh, exposure to the Eastern churches and their liturgy to, to think of it all as something rather exotic. But I want to assure you that from the viewpoint of Eastern Catholics themselves, we do not see ourselves as something exotic. We do not see ourselves as the ecclesiastical botanical gardens or zoo of of the church. Uh, And therefore, just as the liturgy of the Roman Rite is in that sense a very ordinary and regular observance of the church, So even though for many of you here the Byzantine Divine Liturgy will be an extraordinary thing, remember that that extraordinariness is a kind of uh, relative thing on on your part because it's not something you customarily have, but for us it's it's very ordinary. Now, uh, this afternoon I did a couple of things and It's with this I shall begin. Uh, After uh, the Mass this morning, I hurried back to Padre Pio so uh, I could uh, get done in the couple hours and a half that I had an essential task, and that is the preparation of the Eucharistic bread, baking of the Eucharistic bread for the liturgy, because, of course, there's uh, no source for that here other than Uh, making it myself. Generally in a Byzantine parish there are uh, one or two people in the church who are skilled at the baking of the Eucharistic bread, but in addition to that uh, every Byzantine priest, if he's smart, knows how to do it himself. (laughs) Because there's always those occasions. For example, my bread baker, or as we would say, uh, prospera baker, the word for the Eucharistic loaves in Greek, this is the plural of it, prospera, the singular would be prosperon, and uh, the word of course means, anybody know enough Greek? No, tell us what it means. No? Yeah, uh, who said brought forward? Yeah, okay. Yeah, something, something to be brought forward, and if something is brought forward, uh, that means that it's going to be offered. So the prosperon, the prospera, is the bread of offering. And uh, I, I brought one uh, that I baked uh, today. I'm going to show it to you because it's the only opportunity that I have for you to see it 
uh, before it is prepared, uh, be before the liturgy tomorrow, which you probably will not see, at least not see close up, because this is done before the liturgy starts. The uh, Byzantine rite, as do all of the Eastern liturgical rites, with the exception of the Armenian, use leavened bread. It is a bread that is prepared very carefully, just as the unleavened bread in the West has uh, very strict controls as to what it contains. The, our Eucharistic bread may contain only uh, wheat flour, water, a little salt, and the yeast. And, of course, that's the same ingredients as the unleavened bread minus the yeast. See, So, before the celebration of the liturgy will begin, tomorrow the priest, after he is vested, will go to a... Uh, in, in, in the Christendom chapel, will use that... Uh, that side table uh, to the left of the altar above which is the statue of Our Lady. And I will use that as the place where I prepare, as we would say, prepare the gifts, prepare the offering. And after I have vested, I will come and uh, let me walk around with this. Uh, I've baked several of these. That's That's generally the the custom, you bake a number of them and then you use the best one. And uh, as I will describe in just a few moments, uh, it's not all of the loaf even that's used for, for the actual uh, consecrated body of the Lord in the liturgy. You see this bread, it's, it's baked in uh, two layers. There's a larger bottom layer and a smaller top layer. And on the top layer, there is a stamp, you can see, or a seal that has some Greek letters on it. Those letters are the abbreviation of Isus Christos Nika, Jesus Christ Conquers. See all that? And the priest will take the liturgical knife before the liturgy starts and he'll cut out the center portion of the loaf. The loaf is round now, but he will cut out a square portion. That will be large enough for uh, as many communicants as there are going to be, and that's, that's one of the question marks for tomorrow, because I don't know how many communicants there's going to be. I don't know how many people are going to come, so I have to uh, just make a guess, I suppose. And that square portion uh, is called the lamb, the amnos in Greek. I mentioned at, at one of the other talks that the Byzantine tradition uses uh, that word lamb in exactly the same way as the Latin tradition uses the word hostia or host. So uh, the, the lamb of God. Now, uh, once that is prepared and placed on the paten, the priest will uh, put the, pour the wine and water into the chalice and then cover the offering. And after I've done that, I will incense the whole church and then the divine liturgy proper will begin. 
uh, and maybe Phil, you can pass out these books now because the, the purpose of today's talk is as we set a walk through the liturgy, so you'll have now with you uh, the booklets that we'll use in the morning. I'm not going to try to exhaustively explain every aspect and every detail. Uh, obviously, it's, it's not possible to do that in, in one fairly short talk, but we'll, con we'll concentrate on a few things, and that will uh, enable, I hope, uh, those who come tomorrow to, to be better prepared uh, for, for what we will do. One thing to bear in mind, uh, you look at the front of the book, and it says uh, divine liturgy, thea liturgia in Greek. And that expression is used in the Byzantine tradition, again, in exactly the same way as the word mass has come to be used in, the, uh, in English from the Latin Misa. Liturgy, who, how many know? the origin of that word, liturgy, liturgia. Anybody know what does it mean? What does the word mean? And, 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 and not a professor, uh, JC. <laughs> or, or, or other professors. I want to hear from the students. Liturgia, what does the word liturgy mean? Yes. Uh, yes, precisely public ceremony, or more uh, exactly, a public work, public work uh, in, in the Roman Empire and also pre, previous to the Roman Empire in Greece means a, a public gathering for civic or ritual purposes, public assembly. And so to speak of the divine liturgy, really is to speak of the work of God, the work of God. And there is always anyone who, is, who attends the liturgy, who is responsible for some dimension of the liturgy being celebrated well, whether, whether in, in the music or what is needed for the altar, knows that the celebration of the divine liturgy, the celebration of the mass, of the liturgical life of the church, does involve a great deal of work. It, it, it does, by its nature, uh, have labor associated with it. So, when we consider the Byzantine Divine Liturgy, now, uh, one of the ways in which uh, I would like to continue to expose you how, how uh, Latin Rite Catholics can uh, profit from something from the Byzantine tradition because that's the purpose of having all this. It's that, uh, that you may have the, your appreciation for your own tradition expanded, expanded and deepened by participation in another expression of the life of the church. And one of the strengths that the Byzantine liturgy uh, does provide, I think this is, an, this is not an arguable point. Uh, it is that the Byzantine divine liturgy is very stable. 
it has remained the same for a very long time. Uh, it has not that now by that I mean uh, that there I don't mean to say that uh, in other words I, I don't mean to say that there have been no changes of any kind at all but there, they have been very small ones in the course of long periods of time so uh, for example the Byzantine divine liturgy does not have the great number of changes of various sorts that have taken place in the Roman Rite in, in the last several decades, for example. That's not part of our liturgical history. So when you attend the Byzantine liturgy, you're attending a liturgy that has basically been in place uh, as early as the late 4th century, and then by the 8th century has pretty much reached the form that it has now with very little difference from then until now. So that's a, a long period of liturgical stability. So that is, I think, one of the benefits <laughs> that the Byzantine tradition can, can offer uh, to the church at large. Now, another thing to know in, in advance uh, for tomorrow morning is it's important for everyone coming to the Divine Liturgy uh, to know what day it is in the calendar Byzantine style. Because, of course, each particular liturgical tradition has its own calendar. Now, obviously, there are some things that are the same in all uh, traditional calendars of, of, of the liturgical families, but there's also a number of things that are distinct. And it just so happens that tomorrow is a very distinct day in the calendar for us. It is one of two All Souls Days, uh, as, as they would normally be called in the West. Now, uh, in the Western tradition, of course, All Souls Day is the day after All Saints, November 2nd. Uh, in the East, All Souls Day is like, All Saints Day is, always, uh, is also on a different day. And we have two All Souls Days. They're both on Saturday. One is the second Saturday before Lent starts, namely tomorrow. And the other one is the day before Pentecost, the Saturday before Pentecost. The reason why Saturday, and there's a, there's a common tradition of this in both the Latin and, and the Eastern traditions, one of the dimensions of Saturday has for a very long time been a special focus on prayer for the faithful departed. And uh, why would Saturday be chosen for that? Well, of course, it is because it is the day on which our Lord himself and was dead and in the simultaneously in the tomb, but also in Hades, reversing the power of death and announcing to the righteous departed from the beginning of time the coming of salvation. There is a beloved Byzantine hymn speaking of that that says, you were in the tomb with the body, 
in Hades with the soul as God, in paradise with the thief, and on the throne with the Father and the Holy Spirit, O Christ, you fill all, you fill all things you yourself are uncontainable. So Saturday is, is in general a particular day of prayer for the dead and in our calendar because uh, the next day after tomorrow, Sunday, uh, is, is Sunday uh, of this week uh, has two particular names. One is the Sunday of the Judgment because the Gospel of the Last Judgment will be read at the liturgy this Sunday. Uh, it's also called uh, Meat Fair Sunday because it is the last day for the eating of meat until Easter in the Byzantine tradition. We abstain from meat one week uh, before Lent begins as a, as a preparation for the even more austere fast of, of Lent itself. So the day before the Sunday of the Last Judgment Gospel is set aside in particular for prayer for the eternal repose of those who have gone before us. And if, if this were a situation where all of those coming uh, to the Divine Liturgy tomorrow were very familiar with the particular customs of the day, for example, everyone would come tomorrow bringing a list of the names of their departed to be prayed for specifically at the Divine Liturgy. Now, uh, we won't have an opportunity to do that, but we will have a time in the liturgy to pause and each one of us to silently pray uh, by name for all of our, our beloved departed. So that's the day in the year tomorrow. It will be a, a liturgy for the All Souls Saturday, and that means that there will be uh, a number of the features of what would be called in the Latin tradition, to which you are familiar, the Requiem Mass, the Mass for the Departed. Okay. Now, the structure of the Byzantine liturgy, let's go from the uh, general to the specific. It's perhaps best to speak of the Divine Liturgy as having four portions. Uh, often the uh, Roman Mass, well, the, in, the, in the older days, uh, they would speak of the Mass of the Catechumens and the Mass of the Faithful in the traditional Latin Mass. Or in the Novus Ordo Mass, the uh, Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And those divisions are, are useful for the Byzantine Divine Liturgy, it's probably best to speak of these parts. First, the, I'll give you both the Greek and the uh, translation. The Anarxis, or the Liturgy of Gathering. <coughs> the Synaxis. the liturgy of the proclamation of the word, the liturgy of anaphora, or offering, and the liturgy of, and we'll just use the one English word here, the liturgy of communion. So 
gathering proclamation of the word, offering, and communion. Now, all of the traditional liturgies of the apostolic churches have a certain similarity of structure. There is a shape, a basic shape of the liturgy that everyone in the apostolic tradition has followed from as long as there has been anything written about that tradition. I mentioned St. Irenaeus of Lyon uh, the other day uh, in the third century. He mentions this. He, there's an expression that he likes. He says, when he's talking about the whole church, he says, from Syria to Spain. Now, of course, at the time of St. Irenaeus of Lyon, uh, there were even churches found outside that, that geographical, those geographical boundaries, India, for example, Ethiopia. But by, from Syria to Spain, he means from one expanse of the known world to the other. And from Syria to Spain, St. Irenaeus says, you find everywhere the same basic shape of divine worship, and including, in one way or other, all of these features, the assembly, the proclamation of the word, the offering, the communion, in the first detailed description of the celebration of Mass in Rome, for example, which comes from Justin Martyr in the third century. All of these features are mentioned. So, in one sense, it's not as if we're talking about some very different and, again, you know, exotic form of things. Rather, all of the various liturgical expressions are variations of a basic similarity of form or shape. Okay, so that's the first thing to remember. When we speak of the first part of the liturgy, now, if you open your books to page two there, uh, this book has used the expression liturgy of the word in the same way as one would find in the Novus Ordo of the Roman Mass. But m more specifically, this first portion of the liturgy is the liturgy of gathering, or anarxis, the, the liturgy of assembling, something that is never to be taken uh, for granted because the coming together of the assembly to be transformed into the church, to be transformed into the church. What is the church? The church is the body of Christ. The church is what individuals of themselves can never be. An individual is self-defined. A person is relationally defined. The church is the mirror, the icon among human beings of the eternal communion of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal communion of persons. So there is nothing casual <laughs> or accidental about 
the coming together, uh, one of the oldest non-scriptural documents, and in some quarters it was treated as scriptural for a while, from the late first century, the Didache has a prayer for liturgy in which it says, just as the many grains of wheat came together in this one bread, so also gather your church together into your table, at your table in your kingdom, O Lord. The climax of the Eucharistic prayer of the Byzantine liturgy is the apoclesis in which the Father is prayed to send the Holy Spirit to effect the transformation. And, of course, yes, it is the transformation of the offered gifts gifts of bread and wine, but in addition to this, it is to effect the transformation of separated individuals into the communion of persons sharing the eternal life and love of the Holy Trinity. Uh, that prayer, we'll see it later when it comes up, but it says this, send, send down your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these gifts here offered. So not only to transform the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ, but to transform us who by ourselves are separate into the communion of the very life of God. So the assembly of the church is the focus of the first portion of the liturgy. You'll see that the liturgy begins with a blessing of the kingdom of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Lord promised his apostles in St. Luke's Gospel, you shall eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. So the purpose of the liturgy is the ascension of the church to be with her Lord at his table in his kingdom. And thus the liturgy begins with this blessing of the kingdom. Then immediately we have this litany of prayers called the Great Litany. And there are petitions for all the needs of the church. And to each one, the response is always the Kyrie eleison, the Lord have mercy. Now a word about that, because of course it is uh, the use of the Kyrie eleison that is universally found in the church. Uh, it generally always remained in the original Greek when the liturgy of Rome went from Greek into Latin, the Kyrieleison was not translated into Latin, remained in the original language, and also outside of the Greek and Latin liturgies, in the Syriac and Coptic and Armenian and Ethiopian liturgies. Likewise, you find the Kyrieleison. So it's one of the most basic common prayers of the church, and it's something we ought to look at for a moment. Uh, one of the things that, so, that someone who is first uh, participating in a Byzantine divine liturgy uh, will generally say is, well, you sure have lots of Lord have mercies. 
They're everywhere. Uh, and why is that? Well, because it is the most basic expression of the church's prayer. Now, here we have a contrast, you see. Because uh, basically, in the, in the Novus Ordo of the Roman Rite, the Lord have mercy has been become associated with the very beginning of the Mass and the penitential rite, specifically, right? Right? Correct? Yes? And the result of that has been that people have come to see the Kyrie song, the Lord have mercy, as being essentially a prayer by which we are asking the Lord to forgive our sins. But that's not what the Kyrie song is, primarily. The Kyrie song contains that dimension. I'm not suggesting that in praying it we are not asking for the forgiveness of sins, but that is not its primary focus. And those of you familiar with the, the older form of the Roman Mass will, will realize that the Kyrieleison is used there in a way that's much closer to the way we use it in the Byzantine liturgy, where it's sung now in the Byzantine liturgy, it is used as a response, whereas in the, in the traditional Latin mass, it's sung three times three, three times three, three Kyrieleison, three Christeleison, three Kyrieleison. It's developed a kind of Trinitarian form, but it's very much an acclamation in that way. And we ought, therefore, to have at least somewhat of a deeper understanding of what that most basic prayer is, because in, first of all, saying Kyrie, from the evocative from Kyrios, we're addressing the Lord Jesus as Kyrios, as St. Peter proclaimed him to be on the day of Pentecost. The apostolic preaching, the apostolic kerygma, is that Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Christ, Jesus is risen. To say that Jesus is Lord, to call Jesus of Nazareth Kyrios, is to call him a divine being. Then, to, uh, to ask the Lord for his mercy, the English word mercy is the way that the Hebrew word chesed, or the Greek word eleos, from which we, we derive eleison, it's the way that it is most commonly translated, and I can't suggest another better translation of it, but we need to have a very rich understanding of what the eleos, the mercy of the Lord, is. And rich is a good uh, word for it because it really would be equally acceptable. <coughs> of course, we won't do it because it would sound very strange in English. Uh, but translationally, it would be as equally acceptable to say, Lord, have oil, as Lord, have mercy. Elios in Greek is oil. Oil. <coughs> now, if that sounds odd to you, Consider it. What, or rather who, is the oil of God? 
who, why do we acclaim Jesus our Lord as Jesus Christ? What is the Christos? What is the Messiah? He is the anointed one, is he not? Someone anointed has received the oil in the Old Testament. Priests, prophets, and kings are anointed. In the New Covenant, Jesus is anointed in his humanity by the Father with the Holy Spirit. The Father is the one who anoints. The Son is the anointed. The Holy Spirit is the anointing. So the Holy Spirit is the oil of God. The reason why we call ourselves Christians, it was in the city of Antioch that that first uh, appellative was used for the followers of Jesus. Christians, and it was not used by the followers of Jesus themselves. It was used as a kind of uh, even uh, mockery. There, there, go, there go the little Christs, or we might even say the Christettes. <laughs> But the followers of Jesus said that's exactly what we are. We are the little Christs. And the name stuck from then until now. We are the anointed ones. So to pray, Lord, have mercy, is to ask for the Lord to give us his oil, which is to, to pray for the Lord to send the Holy Spirit upon us. That's what Lord have mercy is. And if the Holy Spirit is poured out upon us, we shall have the forgiveness of sins and we shall have the illumining of the heart, mind, soul, and spirit and we shall have the transformation of our beings and we shall have the fullness of the kingdom of God. All of that is in the Lord have mercy. So have a, have a wide uh, love for, for the prayer. Kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy. Yes, yes, it can be seen as... A, a prayer asking for forgiveness, for pardon, but that is only one dimension of it. It has a much wider and much richer sense, and that's how it's used here. So for every need of the church, for the, for the peace of God, for the peace of the whole world, for this particular church, for the, for the Pope and the church hierarchy, for the nation in which we live, for the city and place where we live, for the needs of, of the weather and the fruits of the earth, for the travelers, for the sick, for the persecuted, for ourselves. We all, we continually pray in the great litany, this prayer, Lord, have mercy. And then, finally, the litany with the Lord have mercy ends with a final prayer by the priest. And then if you look on pages 7 and 8... Uh, there is some singing. Hymns which in the Roman rite would, be, would correspond to the Gloria of the Mass. Introductory hymns. Uh, there's a number of these that can be sung. They are called antiphons. And at a most solemn celebration of the Divine Liturgy, there are three full antiphons that are sung. We'll be a little bit shorter tomorrow, and it'll be kind of one and a half antiphons. Uh, the hymn Only Begotten Son from the Emperor Justinian in the 6th century. 
And then the Beatitudes, which summarize the Gospel from St. Matthew's Gospel. Incidentally, for those who come tomorrow, I would, I would especially encourage you, there'll be a hopefully good, strong group of singers leading the singing, but, but I hope that you will uh, feel free to join in the, the singing. Uh, many of the chants are easy to follow. With, with this singing of the Beatitudes comes the transition from the, the gathering in the liturgy to the proclamation of the word. And therefore, as the Beatitudes are sung, it is often the custom for the priest to pick up the book of the Gospels and to take it around for people to, to kiss it. Now, depending on how many are in church tomorrow with the pews, it's not the easiest thing to do, but I'll see what we will do with that at the moment, at the moment that it happens. And then if you look on page 15, we have what is called the little or smaller entrance. The priest will, holding the book of the Gospels, will pro proceed to the altar make the movement to the altar, and as he ascends to the altar, says that prayer of entrance on page 15, blesses the entrance into the sanctuary, then there will be, as you will hear a number of times, one of these uh, uh, acclamations that, that are called out, whether it's let us be attentive here, it's wisdom. Of course, the wisdom is directed to Christ, the wisdom of God. Stand upright or stand aright. There's continual exhortations to the people in the Byzantine liturgy to stand straight. <laughs> That's literally what it says. Sophia or Thi, wisdom, stand straight, because the custom of the Byzantine liturgy is pretty much to stand for the entire liturgy. And because people necessarily, of course, as they stand, stand less and less straight. So the priest or the deacon is periodically exhorting them to straighten up and to be attentive. There is that, by the way, my uh, good, a good uh, time to bring up another inheritance from my great teacher, Father Schmemann. There is that militaristic side of liturgical worship. It's real, and uh, people should not lose uh, the sense of that. Father Schmemann used to say that the church is simultaneously, simultaneously, a hospital and a barracks. Simultaneously a hospital and a barracks. That is, it is a place of healing, a place of care. It's also a place of discipline a place of ascetic struggle. Those, when, when we have either one of those in opposition to or isolated from each other, we have imbalance in the church. The church that is only a hospital can degenerate into subjective emotional experientialism. The church that is only a barracks can become a kind of joyless duty kind of Christianity, with the Christianity of sour faces. And 
It's when they both are, are perfectly in sync, the hospital and the barracks, that uh, the church flourishes the way that she, she uh, is meant to do. And so we have this, this uh, military side of, the, of liturgy in these exhortations for people periodically to pay attention and to stand straight and so forth. Then on page 16, as the priest makes his approach to the altar, uh, the hymn, Come Let Us Worship, is sung, Come Let Us Worship and Fall Down Before Christ. And then, if you turn the page, page 18, the proper of the day is sung, the proper hymns of the day. And in this case, tomorrow, it will be the proper hymns for a requiem liturgy, a liturgy for the faithful departed. And there are two such hymns on page 18 and 19. On page 20, the priest says a fairly lengthy prayer. It is called the prayer of the Trisagion that introduces on page 21 the singing of another one of those most basic prayers of the Byzantine tradition. The holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, have mercy on us. It is a Trinitarian hymn sung three times, then with the doxology, glory to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then, then it's repeated one and a half times again. Now, uh, the Trisagion has been, over the centuries of Christian worship, used extensively in the Greek church, but who uh, remembers on what occasion the Trisagion is used in the Latin liturgy? Because it is. Yes? That's right. That's right. On Good Friday, for the veneration of the cross, uh, when they began to have the service uh, of the veneration of the cross in Rome, it was brought from the east, just as the relics of the precious cross were brought from Jerusalem to Rome. And they uh, imported into the Roman rite the Byzantine veneration of the cross and <coughs> pretty much took the Greek text, translated it into Latin, but when it came to the Trisagion, they kept the Trisagion in Greek and sung it uh, antiphonally in Greek and Latin. So, uh, and I believe that that is retained also in the Novus Ordo for, for Good Friday. It's not found just in the traditional Holy Week services of the Roman Rite, but it's found across the board. But the singing of the Trisagion in the Byzantine liturgy is pretty much a standard thing to be found at every service. And uh, and also in, in uh, uh, popular devotion in the West, the Trisagion is prayed in the Chaplet of the Divine Mercy, is it not? And that probably comes from the uh, familiarity that St. Faustina had as Polish with certain Eastern expressions of prayer. Then, following the singing of the Trisagion comes the proclamation of the scriptural reading. And uh, generally, at uh, the celebration of, of the Divine Liturgy, there will be two readings. And they're, they're called 
in the same way as they have come to be called in the, in the traditional Latin mass, the epistle and the gospel. The epistle is preceded by what is called a prokimenon. Prokimenon means to come before. It's a psalm refrain that functions in the exact same way as the gradual of the Latin mass. The two are exact uh, equivalents of each other. The only difference is that the prokimenon here comes before the reading of the epistle rather than after. And you notice that the text for tomorrow is again for the All Souls Day. Their souls shall dwell with the blessed. After the epistle comes the reading of the gospel preceded by the Alleluia, just as it does in the West. If you look on page 23, the Alleluia is sung. The priest says a prayer before the reading of the gospel, and then the gospel is proclaimed. And just as it is in the West, it's accompanied by the carrying of candles and the incensing of the gospel book. These are, these are liturgical rites that go across the board in all liturgical traditions. Uh, following the gospel and homily, there is another litany beginning on page 24, the litany of fervent supplication, the response, likewise, Lord have mercy, but then sung in groups of three beginning on page 25. This is the litany in which the priest may add special petitions for the particular needs of the day and the needs of the, of the local church. So it corresponds to the prayers of the faithful in the Novus Ordo Mass in that way. Although the form is more set here. Page 27, the prayer of the faithful this is the transition between the liturgical proclamation of the word, the synopsis, and the anaphora, the liturgy of offering, because in this prayer, the priest prays for the first time words that direct the church to the Eucharistic offering. Uh, once again, and many times, we fall before you and ask you, good and loving Lord, that having looked upon our petition, you might cleanse our souls and bodies of every defilement of flesh and spirit, might permit us to stand uh, guiltless and uncondemned before your holy altar, and then go down a few lines, uh, grant that they who serve you with fear and love may always partake of your holy mysteries without blame or condemnation, be made worthy of your heavenly kingdom. So this is a prayer of transition to the Eucharistic offering, which begins in the Byzantine rite with the singing of a very beloved hymn called the Cherubic Hymn, or the Hymn of the Cherubim. Now, this is a point in which there is a difference in liturgical expression between the Latin and the Byzantine traditions. Because, as you all know, the first part of the liturgy of the Eucharist in the Latin tradition is the offertory. The offertory. The offertory has always consisted of, in the Roman rite, in one way or other, the 
bringing the, the bringing of the gifts to the altar, generally presented by members of the, of the congregation in some form or other, even though in the traditional Latin mass sometimes that was lost, it was still assumed to be this participation by the faithful in the offering. If you were to go to uh, mass in the 8th century in the city of Rome, Let's say, let's imagine ourselves all there on a Sunday morning and we're going to the papal mass. Uh, everybody at that mass would go to the altar twice. Not once, but twice. First you went up to present your offering, which for the vast majority of people was uh, a little loaf of bread or perhaps a little, a little bottle of wine. Only the very rich would have money or gold or such things to present. So everybody went up to present their offering. Even the Pope would present his offering to the deacon. Even the orphans, this is a nice little uh, uh, detail, even the orphans of the papal orphanage who didn't have anything to offer, so what did they offer? They offered the water to be poured into the chalice. The point was that everybody offered. And then, of course, you came back the second time to receive. The Eucharist. So, two trips to the altar rail, traditionally, historically, in the Roman Rite, and the first one is this offertory. The contrast in the Byzantine Rite is that from the beginning, by that I mean in the fourth century, the first, uh, the first time chronologically when there is detailed descriptions of, of uh, the liturgical celebrations of the various churches, in the Eastern churches, the bringing, the actual bringing of the bread and wine to the altar was seen as a priestly act. So that's, that's one of the most obvious contrasts between the uh, Roman rite and the Byzantine rite. When the time has come for the beginning of the <coughs> liturgy of the Eucharist, the priest, or if he has a deacon, the deacon will, will uh, assist him. The priest himself very solemnly carries the, the chalice and the discos with the prepared bread and wine through the church in a, in a big procession called the Great Entrance, and that's what we'll have tomorrow. Uh, to, to begin this act of liturgical offering. And during that, the beloved cherubic hymn is sung. Let us who mystically represent the cherubim. Now that might sound a little exotic, but it isn't really. It's simply saying, let us uh, human beings who on earth are doing as the heavenly beings in the, in the kingdom of God. We, we do, we are mystically, uh, in, in Greek this would be ita cherubim mysticos ikonizandes. We who are icons of the cherubim, as the cherubim adore God eternally, so we now also enter into that heavenly liturgy, which is so much uh, so deeply rooted in the Byzantine experience of the liturgy that it is a, a heavenly communion. It is joining on earth in, in the one eternal divine liturgy of heaven. So let us, who mystically represent the cherubim, it's repeated a number of times that, that phrase, 
look on, on page 29 and 30, who sing the thrice holy hymn, holy, 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 to the life-giving trinity, now lay aside all earthly cares. These phrases are repeated. As that is done, the priest says a prayer for himself that though he is unworthy, the Lord may, may enable him to worthily offer the Eucharistic sacrifice. That's the prayer on page 32. Then page 33, the priest goes to the place of preparation where he takes the gifts and carries them through the church for the great entrance. And when he has brought them to the altar, the cherubic hymn is finished, page 34, that we may receive the king of all who comes invisibly upborne by the angelic hosts. So that, of course, receiving the king of all is a reference to the coming communion. Then, on page 35, we have the kiss of peace. The, pe the priest blesses the people and invites them to, to share the kiss of peace with the words, let us love one another so that we may be of one mind in confessing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then traditionally the people exchange uh, a, 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 a brief embrace on the three shoulders saying Christ is in our midst. He is and always will be. And that's done by uh, everyone uh, in the church with those around them. Notice here in the Byzantine liturgy, it takes place before the consecration, not, not just before communion, as it has traditionally taken place in the Roman rite. So here the, the kiss of peace is exchanged also as a sign of rec re uh, reconciliation before the, uh, the Eucharistic offering actually is made. Then we have the singing of the creed, Nicene Creed in the traditional Byzantine form. Then beginning on page 41, the Eucharistic prayer, or anaphora, to just as the the uh, name for the Eucharistic bread is the prospera, the offering, that which is brought forward. Now the prospera becomes the anaphora, that which is lifted up. And of course, all anaphorae uh, begin with a variation of the same dialogue. In the Byzantine one, first the deacon, there won't be a, a deacon serving with me tomorrow, so it will be I myself who say this. Let us stand well, again, uh, uh, a direction to stand well. Let us stand with fear, let us be attentive, that we may offer the holy oblation in peace. And then there's the response. Then a blessing. Uh, the blessing that in the New Roman Mass comes at the beginning of, of the Mass itself, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all and with your spirit. Uh, let us lift up our hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord. It is fitting and right. And then the priest begins the great Eucharistic prayer of thanksgiving, to which the people respond with the sanctus found in, in uh throughout the liturgical traditions. It is uh, the practice on weekdays, as long as it is not the Easter season, uh, after the Sanctus to kneel down for the Eucharistic prayer. So in this case, at our liturgy tomorrow, 
the uh, Byzantine rite and the Roman rite will express itself in a, in a, a, a similar way because in the Roman rite you kneel in modern days for Eucharistic prayer all around the year, though that was not the case anciently. But on, on weekdays, uh, the people do kneel for the Eucharistic prayer, uh, which continues on leading up to the words of institution because, of course, the... Uh, Byzantine liturgy contains the words of the institution in the present tense, as I spoke of last evening. Uh, I received a couple of questions uh, after the talk, and actually before the talk as well. If I were going to mention the liturgy, it's not a Byzantine liturgy, but it's an Eastern one. It's the liturgy of Ade and Mari. Uh, it is the liturgy used by the Assyrian or Chaldean tradition. It is, uh, therefore, in an Aramaic liturgy. The, the anaphora, or the Eucharistic prayer of the liturgy of Ade and Mari, is the longest standing Eucharistic prayer uh, that the church's liturgical treasury contains. It's been used a longer time than any of the either Byzantine or Roman prayer. So it's an old, an old, old prayer. And one of the things that never fails to shock people, not only, not only uh, those from the Latin rite, but those from the Byzantine rite as well, is that the anaphora of Ade and Mare has no words of institution. To which the knee-jerk response is, well, how can it be a consecration without words of institution? <coughs> but... The prayer, in fact, does ask for the consecration, does ask for the transformation of the offerings into Christ's body and blood without specifically referring to the words of institution. Now, there was a uh, uh, dis uh, discussion of this in the Congregation of, uh, for Liturgy and Sacraments as to whether or not, because the Assyrian Church of the East is progressing towards uh, complete unity with, with uh, the, the Church of Rome and the other churches. Uh, so uh, discussion took place, it was not so long ago, maybe about, maybe about a decade ago, I think, as to whether or not this could be acceptable in, in, uh, in usage within the communion of the Catholic Church. And the decision was made that, yes, yes. Because in the end, you see, as, as much as we both, whether Latins or Byzantines, as much as we, it's, it would be uh, impossible for us to conceive of a liturgy without the words of institution, really, we do have to remember that uh, they have gone on in, in one church for a very long time. And the command of the Lord uh, is, do this, do this as my memorial. What is said has varied. <coughs> over the years. So that's, that is as far as I will comment on the liturgy of Ade and Mare. But here, back to the Byzantine liturgy, of course, the words of institution are chanted very solemnly uh, with, the, with an amen response. Then on page 45, the anaphora continues with the remembrance or anamnesis. The priest prays, do this as a memorial of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim my death and confess my resurrection until, he, until I come. And then specifically, 
uh, enumerates the saving works of the Lord through his passion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and return. And return. Notice that uh, that prayer there in the middle of page 45 says that we are remembering the second and glorious coming. That very much reveals to us that we're not talking about chronological time anymore, nor are we to be experiencing chronological time anymore because the liturgy is the church's ascent to the eternity of God's kingdom. And so we say that we remember the cross and we also rem we remember the cross which has occurred chronologically. We also remember the second and glorious coming, which is yet to come chronologically, but in the eternity of God's kingdom, all of these are realities, simultaneously. And while the priest says these words, he elevates the, the holy gifts in the form of a cross. He, ta he takes the, the paten in his uh, right hand and the chalice in his left and elevates them like this makes the sign of the cross with them as a sign of the liturgy as that which actualizes the death of the Lord. And then on page 46 we have what is not unique to the Byzantine tradition but the place that the Byzantine tradition gives to the apoclesis or or invocation of the Holy Spirit upon, as I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, the church and the gifts. And uh, there the Holy Spirit, just as by the Holy Spirit Christ is incarnate in the womb of Mary, so also by the Holy Spirit is the change, the metaboli, as it is uh, said in Greek, the change of the bread and wine into Christ's body and blood is affected. And therefore, at the apoclesis of the Holy Spirit, that is when, in traditional Byzantine piety, the people at the liturgy bow all the way down to the ground. Then we'll have to move a little bit more quickly, uh, and I'll just uh, focus on some central things. Following the apoclesis, the... Eucharistic prayer continues with the remembrance of the saints and always, and I think this is, this is one feature that, that everyone can, can share a great love for, one of, the, one of the unique features of the Byzantine liturgy is in the middle of the Eucharistic prayer at every liturgy, there is always a hymn to Our Lady. Because just as she, through her, through, through her, the Son of God becomes incarnate. So now that incarnation is also actualized upon the altar. So we always sing to her right after the consecration and epiclesis. Then uh, pages 49, the, the remembrances of the saints continue, the living and the, part and the departed, all, all the needs of the church. Then the Eucharistic prayer ends and the communion of the liturgy begins just exactly as it does in the West with the Lord's Prayer. Then finally, looking on page 53, before communion, the, prayer, the priest says a prayer for all those present that they may receive communion in a worthy manner. Then 
on page 54, he again elevates the Holy Lamb, the body of Christ, and says, the holy gifts for holy people, and the response is, one is holy, one is Lord. Again, it's not a it's not a unresolved paradox here. The people of God, the church of God, is a communion of the holy, and they are it is possible to say that we are holy, as Saint Peter says, you are a chosen race, a holy people, because the one holy one, Jesus Christ our Lord, has saved us from sin and death and given us the share of his own life and thus reconciled us with the Father. Then, uh, here is something that I, I must point out because it is certainly a unique feature of the Byzantine Rite. Page 55, just before communion, the priest places a, a particle of the consecrated lamb into the chalice. That happens in the Roman Rite as well. It's a, a, one could go on for quite a long time about the origin of that practice, but I won't do that here. In the Byzantine Rite, in addition to doing that, he does something else which you find only in the Byzantine Rite. The server, will, the acolyte, will bring to the priest a pitcher of boiling water. And the priest will bless it and pour a certain amount of it, not, not too large amount, but not too small amount either, into the chalice. And he says the words that you see there on page 55. Blessed is the warmth of your holy things, the warmth of faith, fullness of the Holy Spirit. That unique act of the, of the uh, Byzantine liturgy is to materially express the sign that it is the living, risen Christ that we receive. So the chalice is warm because what is alive is warm. You don't find that anywhere else in Christian liturgy except in the Byzantine practice. Not even the other Eastern liturgies do it. It's uniquely Byzantine practice. And, and a beautiful thing. A beautiful thing. Then there is a prayer, the prayer before communion. It's, it's a corresponding to the Domine non sum dignus, but it's longer, of course, in the Byzantine tradition. And then the, then the receiving of communion. Communion has come to be received in the Byzantine practice now for about a millennium uh, by, the, by the laity uh, in both forms received from the spoon. So the priest, after he receives communion, divides the lamb into uh, portions that are placed into the chalice and then each one of the people come forward, and I'll mention this in church tomorrow, too, if you've never received communion in the Byzantine Rite. It's very easy once you've done it the first time. Uh, one opens one's mouth, no tongue out. Open your mouth wide and tilt your head back. And that's all that need be done. The priest uh, drops gently the body and blood of Christ into your mouth with the spoon. You don't say anything. As, as in the, the uh, traditional Roman rite, you don't say anything either. Uh, you, you simply receive that way, and then, and then the servers will, will wipe your, your lips with the communion cloth. So that's, that's how uh, now for a long time 
in the Byzantine tradition, the people have, have received in both forms. The, the, Eastern, the Eastern liturgies have never known the practice of the withdrawal of the chalice from the faithful. So, however, they have devised ways to, to give communion in both forms, particularly with, with the spoon, in which still there is a certain safeguarding of, of the body and blood of Christ and, and the holy vessels. So that's, that's how it's happened with us in the Byzantine tradition. Then uh, following communion, just briefly, there are uh, uh, conclusion of the liturgy with final prayers and blessings. I think I can just sum them up that way because it's getting late. And... I thought, though, that by doing this, it's a little bit more hands-on. And now the, the Byzantine rite celebration of the Divine Liturgy should not be so much an, uh, an inscrutable mystery to you. So did it help in that way? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Any questions? Father, I like point out that it's speaking about the Holy Trinity that making the sign of the cross. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, the, the Byzantine form of making the sign of the cross, what you see in, an, a, a, in, in basically throughout the Eastern churches, is that sign of the cross is made with uh, the three fingers, the thumb and the first two fingers together, like this, for the Holy Trinity, and with the fourth and fifth fingers pressed against the hand for the divinity and humanity of Christ, like that. And the, uh, of course, we say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, going from the right to left. And the reason why we do it is that's the way we've always done it. <laughs> <laughs> you know? that, 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 the reason why that's the, the explanation for so many things. We could talk a long time about all the, all the, the uh, discord that went on at a certain period in the church life about leavened and unleavened bread. We use leavened bread because that's what we've always done. That's what, and that's what the Roman tr tradition did too for, for nearly all of the first millennium. So it's not. And the sign of the cross was made that way in the West also until a certain point. Yes, yes. That's the original form of making the sign of the cross. We tend to do it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, we, are, we are not stingy with signs of the cross. If you ever go to the Byzantine liturgy, it seems like people are doing it all the time. Whenever the Holy Trinity is mentioned at the end of prayers, and sometimes when, when simply the person is struck by something, they, will, they are hearing or praying, they will make the sign of the cross to express it. Another typically Byzantine uh, uh, movement is, is the, the bowing with the hand to the floor, like this. Uh, the Greeks bowed with, uh, bowed with the hand, the Romans bowed with the knee. It's basically the same expression made in two different ways. I also should mention that, uh, that it is, it is the, the traditional practice of the Eastern churches to maintain the, the traditional Eucharistic fast. Uh, this, is not, this is not something that is imposed. It's something that I, for this liturgy, would invite you to do tomorrow, that you make the Holy Eucharist the first food of the day. Uh, that is that's simply a physical way of putting the Lord first. And of course, this, this fast was kept 
across the board from apostolic times, from apostolic times in all liturgical traditions, including the Roman one, till very recently. So it's not some some uh, arcane and obscure practice. It's a very uh, a very direct, uh, I said, physical way of saying with your body that you put the, the food of the Lord's body and blood before anything else. Of course, it, it's always been recognized that, that there are some people who are unable to do that and, and exceptions are made. But I would at least uh, invite you, invite you to prepare for the Eucharist if you're coming tomorrow. Philip? So. Oh yes, thank you. Uh, I, I showed you uh, and I was going to mention it when I described the bread. I, I mentioned to you that it is the, the uh, center of the Eucharistic loaf that the priest cuts out and is consecrated during the liturgy. I also mentioned to you that I didn't make one loaf but three. Well, that means that, that for, the, for the divine liturgy, I'm only going to use the center of one of those three loaves. What, what happens to the rest of it? It's put in the back so that the faithful may take it. That's right. It's, it is uh, uh, cut off. It's, it is not, it's not uh, the Holy Eucharist. It's not a consecrated bread, but nevertheless, it's bread that is considered to be blessed, and it's cut up, and, and at the very end of the liturgy, at the dismissal of the liturgy, the, the people come, the priest holds a cross, and the people come and kiss the cross, and then usually there's someone standing either next to the priest or sometimes in the back of the church with a bowl of those pieces of bread, and everyone is welcome to take one. The, the French tradition, actually, in the West still does this after high mass. They have the pain veni, the blessed bread. So it's, uh, it had its place in the West, too. Yes, questions? Oh, yes. seen like uh, they'll have like people who are too young to receive communion yet or things like that across their hands or their chest. Oh, really? It says here that y'all do that just regularly. So yeah, and that's you've asked two very that you made two very good points that I'm, uh, I'm glad that you did. The uh, normal way of of approaching communion is to cross your hands. Uh, so it's this is not the sign in the East of I'm not receiving communion. This is the sign of I am receiving communion. <laughs> it also used to be, I remember when I was a little boy in the, in the Latin church where we went, this is how people were instructed to come uh, to kneel at the communion rail. So it, this, this, this sign, it's a, it's a basic ancient sign of submission before, before the Lord. Uh, this is the way that, that customarily we come to communion. You mentioned little children. Uh, you may or may not know that, that uh, in, the, in the Eastern churches, of course, little children all receive communion because little children, when they are baptized, are also confirmed and from then on receive the Eucharist. The, the uh, staggered uh, uh, administration of the sacraments with now communion coming before the sacrament of the Holy Spirit is a very recent development overall in the West, and it's not something that, that the universal church shares. And it's, it's uh, uh, even though, of course, because the Roman usage is so large and people think of it as normative, 
everyone ought to realize that the normative reception of the sacraments of, of initiation, as they are called, are baptism, the seal of that baptism in the spirit, and then the receiving of Holy Communion. And there's never been a notion in the Eastern Church that, that someone cannot receive communion until they are instructed. We all have to be instructed, but we baptize children without instructing them. And what do we baptize them for? To be members of the church and to... So in our... Now this is going to sound a little bit combative, but I don't mean it that way. Uh, 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 to, from the viewpoint of, of Eastern Catholics and Eastern Orthodox, to have, to have baptized people that don't receive communion is a contradiction in terms. So, and as I think many of you know, as you study sacramental theology here even, if you read what has been written of it from, from various sources in the West, that this is, this is something that is continually being considered as to what, what would be the most faithful way to, to uh, express the, the uh, overall universal tradition of the church. But anyway, uh, little children in the Eastern churches receive communion from the day of their baptism. You mentioned that you don't say anything in this book that it says to whisper softly your name. Oh, you may, you may, if you wish. Uh, you don't say anything after receiving communion, but if you wish to say your first name to the priest before he gives you communion, that is the custom. I, if someone doesn't do that, I, I don't, you know, remind them to do that generally because it's it's defeats the whole thing. Uh, the reason why is that the the priest, when giving communion to each person, says the precious body and blood of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ is given to the servant of God, then he says his or her name, for remission of sins and life everlasting. So we all receive personally by name. So you, you are certainly uh, welcome and encouraged to do that, but if you forget it, it doesn't, it won't matter in this case. Thank you for bringing that up. Oh, well, you will see it tomorrow. Byzantine and Roman liturgical vestments are basically the same vestments cut in two different ways. And what are the vestments? The vestments are basically the, the form that, in which a gentleman would dress in late antiquity. So he has, he has a tunic uh, that, that becomes the alb in the west or the sticarion in the east. And then there's some... Then there is the, the stole, the, the uh, scarf, the scarf of, of teaching authority. And in the, in the west, the two bands of it are open. In the east, the two bands are sewn together, but it's the same stole. In the, in the western vestments, <coughs> it's, tied, it's tied with a cord, the cincture. In the, in the eastern vestments, it's a belt made of vestment material that you tie around, around your middle. The eastern vestments have a cuffs for the priest's arms. So that's pro probably the only thing that doesn't have an equivalent in the west. The, the chasuble, the, the philonium, or the casula, you know, in, in, the, in the, the, the large vestment, initially was a great conical piece of material that went down to the floor all the way around, front and back. Uh, but, the, of course, there's some difficulty with using your hands with such a vestment. 
And some of the very old vestments used to have buttons or hooks where the priest would lift it up and kind of hang it so his arms were free. Well, that also was regarded in time as cumbersome. So what, here's what happened. In the West, they cut up the sides. So uh, the Western chasuble is open on the sides to free the priest's arms. In the, in the Greek tradition, they cut up the front. So it's the same vestment, one with the front cut up and the other with the sides cut up. <laughs> but in all cases, you know, as uh, Father Schmemann used to say, purpose of the vestments is to veil the individuality of the priest because the priest is the, the image, the icon of the one priest, the vested priest, is uh, the reminder that there aren't many priests and there aren't many altars and there aren't many masses or liturgies. There is one, and that one is made manifest each time. Thank you very much, Father. again, thank you for, for everyone's warm welcome during these days. It's been a joyful thing to be here. I wanted to come to this college for a long time and finally managed to do it. And now, of course, we'll have the climax of that all with the Divine Liturgy celebrated tomorrow morning. Great. I just spoke prophetically there by mistake. <laughs>